Welcome back to another episode of the Horde Historical Museum's podcast, Digging Our Past. I'm Marilyn Lee, the director of the Horde Museum, and in these podcasts, we love exploring the well-known and little-known history of our town, Port Atkinson, Wisconsin, and our area. Today, we're going to examine an area that represents an extraordinary part of human history. It redefines what we know about the ancient peoples who call this area home. It puzzles and astounds us. It creates more mystery than it provides answers. And the best part? We drive by it nearly every day. If you were a bird flying over Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin, you would see that the river literally splits Fort Atkinson nearly in half from north to south. And whether you're a Fort Northsider or Southsider, we locals constantly use the Rock River and our two bridges to navigate our town. The river is a frequent topic of conversation at coffee clutches through town, as everyone discusses whether it's too high, too low, who's fishing what out of it right now, or who has a new boat on the river and is taking their new boat too fast. The Rock River itself is nearly 300 miles long and begins with three separate branches that flow into the Horicon Marsh. During its trek southward towards the Mississippi River, the Rock River flows through Fort Atkinson, Janesville, and Beloit in Wisconsin, before heading into Illinois and passing through Rockford. Eventually, it empties into the Mississippi River at the Quad Cities, Rock Island, Davenport, Moline, and Bettendorf. And while the Rock River flows through so much of Wisconsin and Illinois, today we're only going to focus on a small part of its banks as it runs through Fort. To get to that spot, Let's begin our journey on the Main Street Bridge in downtown Fort Atkinson. The Main Street Bridge is the oldest bridge site in town and spans the Rock River almost in the middle of town. If we travel north from the bridge to Sherman Avenue and then travel west on Sherman, eventually we'll end up on Riverside Drive. Riverside Drive, which is also the less picturesquely named Wisconsin Highway 106, runs parallel to the Rock River as the town travels west out of town. Riverside Drive is one of my favorite streets in town because of its proximity to the river and the lovely architecture found on Riverside Drive homes. If we were to travel west nearly out of town on Riverside, on our right would be a small grassy lot sandwiched in between houses and driveways. There are small wooden fence sections at the corners. We see historical markers at the area, but there's not a good spot to pull over and read them as we cruise by. The river is on one side and there are houses all around the spot. So what's so special about this little grassy spot next to the highway that we drive by nearly every day? For that answer, we need to do a little time traveling. We'll stay in the same spot, nestled between the river and our grassy area, but we're going back about 1,000 years. Around 1,000 years ago, the paved highway is gone, replaced with a simple footpath that follows along the edge of the river. The houses are also gone, replaced by old-growth hardwood trees, such as oaks and maples. Even the grassy spot looks different. When we saw it in the modern era, it was uneven and looked, well, lumpy. Now it's flat and smooth. So what's happened? At some point in the late woodland period, early Native Americans living in our area built an effigy mound in what would become our little grassy spot. The late woodland period was from roughly 1,000 to 1,500 years ago. Native Americans living during this period were early farmers, traded items with other communities even long distances away, created and decorated pottery, and made effigy mounds. An effigy mound is a mound of soil formed into a specific shape. Most effigy mounds are only a few feet high, generally less than three to four feet tall. They can be a few feet in diameter or over 200 feet in length, 
such as the Man Mound, located in Baraboo. They can be a simple geometric shape, such as conical mounds found throughout south-central Wisconsin, or can be in the shape of an animal or a bird. The word effigy is used to describe them because of the mound's shape is representative. Representative of what is still uncertain, but the likely answer is that it is representative of sacred beliefs and symbols held in importance by the woodland Native Americans who built them. The mound found today along Riverside Drive is quite different from these mounds. Most effigy mounds are raised, but the Riverside Drive mound is a mound in reverse. The Riverside Drive mound is technically an intaglio mound. Intaglio is an Italian term used for describing something that's been carved out or notched out, which is what the Native Americans did to the earth. They dug out the effigy shape in the ground. The intaglio on Riverside is roughly two feet deep and is in the shape of a panther or perhaps a lizard, both of which have great importance in woodland Native American tradition. While we don't know exactly what it is, it definitely is a four-legged creature with a tail. So how was it constructed? Well, in an era with only hand tools, it was built the old-fashioned way. First, the builders selected a site. The site of this mound is located near two water sources, and this proximity to water is a similarity that most intaglios shared. The two water sources for our intaglio are the Rock River and an artesian well still flowing several feet behind the intaglio. The intaglio's shape and location may have some connection to the builder's belief of the underworld. This theory is especially convincing when you consider that the intaglio was dug out and not built up. A quick caveat. Much of what we modern people know about the mounds and intaglios is an informed supposition, which is fancy talk for best guess. And the peoples who built the mounds left no explanation as to why or how they built the mounds. The mounds themselves were built by the ancestors of our modern Native American nations. And while the modern First Nations view the sites as sacred and worthy of being protected, they don't have any more particular answers to the questions of who built them or why. So back to our intaglio. While we don't know details, we can presume a few distinct possibilities. And even though we generally don't like to presume as historians, in this case, it's all we can do since we have no other sources besides the intaglio to glean information from. So here goes with our presuming story. At some point, roughly a thousand years ago, a person, or more likely a group of people, decided to build a mound. Then, for a reason very important to them, they chose to make this a dugout mound versus a built-up mound. After they selected the site, they cleared it up any trees or vegetation that might be in their way. They either decided on the shape together or had known already what shape their intaglio would be made into. They spaced out the size of the intaglio. So many feet this way, so many feet that way. They decided the placement of the head, legs, and tail. Once they were satisfied and prepared to start constructing the mound, someone made the first chop into the ground to begin digging out the mound. Someone else helped move the soil away from the site. More and more soil was removed until the group was satisfied with the depth of the mound and its shape. And then it was done. Hopefully, our Native American builders felt a sense of completion and pride at what they had constructed. But we don't know, because the truth is, we know nothing about the actual people who built the intaglio. Their names, their birth dates, favorite activities, nothing. All we have left of them to prove their very existence is the intaglio. At some point, Woodland Native Americans stopped building mounds. We're not exactly certain why or when, but eventually mound building became passe.
Modern Native Americans, particularly the Ho-Chunk Nation, feel it's their duty to protect and preserve the mounds, which were built by their ancestors. And, for 90% of the mounds, contain the human remains of other ancestors. And so the intaglio remained where it is as time passed by. Very little change for the intaglio. The river continued to flow, and people continued to pass by the intaglio and utilize both the river and the well. Trees sprouted, grew to their full size, and were eventually toppled by age and the weather. But beyond the intaglio's scope, much was changing. Roughly 500 years after the intaglio was constructed, native nations living on the East Coast were introduced to European traders. The Europeans had traveled from their homes in search of other groups' resources, such as gold, spices, tea, and other items that the Europeans wanted to sell in Europe. The introduction did not go well for the native nations. The Europeans had also brought with them several new infectious diseases, including smallpox, measles, and typhoid fever, all of which ran unchecked through the native populations who had never been exposed to these diseases before. Millions perished. The best estimate is that the population of the Americas, North, Central, and South, dropped by 90% in the century after coming into contact with the Europeans and their new diseases. And then it got worse. As more Europeans moved to what was to them a new land, the native populations were shoved out of their homes by force, intimidation, and questionable politics. Native nations moved and were moved further and further west. Eventually, land in what we now call Wisconsin was, quote, discovered, unquote, by English-speaking settlers. Of course, the Native Americans who lived here already knew it was here. But when English-speaking settlers, and for clarity, I'm just going to call them settlers from here out, arrived in this area, they found something incredible. Mounds made of earth in a variety of shapes, sizes, and locations. Hundreds, thousands of mounds spread throughout southern Wisconsin. The settlers were astounded. One of these early settlers, a true Renaissance man named Increase Lapham, decided to start surveying the mounds. In the 1850s, he was already concerned about the destruction of these mounds. You see, to the average settler, the mounds were simply in the way of progress. Plowing up the mound to make way for a field was a perfectly acceptable thing to do. But not to Lapham. He wanted to know more about them, but first he had to know how many there were. It's in Lapham's survey of the mounds around what would become Fort Atkinson that we first see a reference to the intaglio. He would eventually publish his mound surveys in a book, The Antiquities of Wisconsin, and in this book, he referred to the intaglio as the excavation. In total, he surveyed 12 intaglios in the state, but only ours on Riverside Drive remains today. The others were all destroyed by so-called progress. So why do we have ours? For that, we can thank a renegade group of ladies. Around the turn of the 20th century, our local chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution, or DAR, became very concerned about the status of the intaglio. At that time, it was on land privately owned by Mr. G. Telfer. Just a heads up, Mr. Telfer is the villain in this story, and since there are still Telfers in Fort Atkinson, I would just like to say that I think Mr. Telfer was a cranky anomaly in an overall pleasant family. Sorry, Telfer family, but every family has at least one crank. Mr. Telfer was actively plowing down the mounds on his property, and up next was the intaglio. The DAR felt it was crucial to save the intaglio from Mr. Telfer's plow. In order to protect the intaglio, in 1890, the DAR agreed to rent the land with the intaglio on it from Mr. Telfer for the sum of $15 a year. 
In the Horde Museum archives, we have the agreement between the DAR and Mr. Telfer for the rent. But $15 isn't a lot of money, right? Well, it's not in today's money. Using an inflation calculator to adjust the sum from 1890s money to today's money, $15 in 1890 was about $415 in today's money. That's a large sum for a small town nonprofit organization to agree to pay each year. Remember, the DAR is a ladies' organization, and in 1890, the vast majority of women did not work outside the home and would not be able to contribute money they earned themselves to the Telfer rent. They would have had to ask their husbands for their portion of the sum, or fundraise for it each year. This act of agreeing to pay Mr. Telfer $15 to not plow a section of his land, the section with the intaglio on it, shows how dedicated the DAR were to preserving it. Our local DAR may have been inspired to act because of the then-new development of what we now call historic preservation, and specifically, the preservation of the estate once owned by a man very important to the revolution. In the 1850s, the newly formed Mount Vernon Ladies Association fundraised to purchase Mount Vernon, George and Martha Washington's estate. The goal of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association was to restore the estate and open it to the public for viewing. Even today, Mount Vernon is still owned by the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. The efforts by the group to purchase and preserve Mount Vernon led to a slew of other groups purchasing historic sites to preserve them from destruction or from being developed into something else, and then allowing the public to view the historic sites. Our local DAR's efforts to purchase the intaglio to preserve it for all of us is a direct descendant of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association's efforts. Much like the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, our local DAR chapter was initially mocked for their efforts. They were frequently reminded of where woman's place truly was. To these gentlemen, a woman's place was in the home and not in public or politics, and certainly not trying to preserve a bit of soil that could be used in a better way. A house could be built there, or a factory. Why preserve it when it could be used for something else? Obviously, these ladies did not listen to these naysayers. They had a larger goal in mind, and were not going to be persuaded otherwise. And so all was fine for the next decade. The DAR raised $15 each year and gave it to Mr. Telfer to not plow the intaglio. All told, they rented about 2,200 square feet of land from him, or about 0.05 of an acre, less than the amount you could build a house on even now. In 1910, however, something changed. And just a spoiler, this is the part where Mr. Telfer truly becomes the villain. In 1910, the DAR were informed by Mr. Telfer that he was going to plow under the intaglio and the large conical effigy mound that was at the base of the tail unless they raised $200 to give him. Oh, and to make it worse, the DAR had only 24 hours to do it. Using our helpful inflation calculator, $200 in 1910 is about $5,200 today. If you're a part of a community organization or not-for-profit, or really any organization, raising $5,200 in 24 hours is next to impossible. Most organizations, then or now, don't have that much money in reserve, and most individual members of organizations wouldn't be able to pay out several hundred dollars overnight to cover their portion. This was an impossible request. Now, the museum's archives don't explain why Mr. Telfer made this outrageous demand. Maybe he needed the money for something. Maybe he was tired of just getting $15 a year and wanted more money. Or maybe he was hoping that the DAR would fail and he could finally plow the section with the intaglio 
like he wanted to. If you read the newspaper articles and DAR reports from the time, you can tell that they're desperately trying to be polite towards Mr. Telfer. Maybe the members of the DAR thought, this is a ladies' organization after all. It's important to act like a lady. However, I'm not a member of the DAR, so I'm going to say it. Mr. Telfer was being a greedy jerk. He took on a charitable ladies' group in the hopes of making them fail. Not cool, Telfer. Not cool. So what did the DAR do? Oh, just something awesome. If you've ever lived in a small town or been active in the community organization, you know there's always a group of ladies who get things done. They're the ones running the bake sales for the schools, the ones managing the food pantry, the library's fundraiser, the church's funeral dinners, the community pork chop dinners, and so on. They're doers. They know how to mobilize and how to deal with a crisis. Guess what? The DAR was a group made entirely of these ladies. Intelligent ladies with powerful connections, perhaps access to those with deep pockets, and especially the ability to take someone to task for his audacious behavior. They were, after all, daughters of American Revolutionary soldiers. It was again time to fight for a common cause and against a common enemy. King George III, meet Mr. Telfer. Through their connections, with significant help from Tuesday Club, another local ladies' organization, also made entirely of doers, within 24 hours, the DAR had raised the funds. I would have loved to have seen Mr. Telfer's face when the DAR informed him that they had raised the ridiculous amount of money he requested on stupidly short notice. Then, for some reason, much like the famed revolutionary militia members, everyone went home and forgot the conflict. I can't tell if the DAR continued to pay rent each year or if the $200 was seen as a longer-term payment, but for the next decade, nothing seemed to happen with the intaglio. But sadly, the mound at the base of the intaglio's tail was plowed under by Mr. Telfer during this time. In 1920, again concerns grew about the safety of the intaglio, and this time, the DAR went on the offense. DAR members approached Mr. Telfer about selling the land. Mr. Telfer said he wanted $500 for the 0.05 acre, which in 1920 would be about $6,500 in today's money. Again, that's a lot of money to raise. But the DAR had an idea. After confirming the amount with Telfer, they approached the city of Fort Atkinson and struck another bargain. If the city would put in $300, the DAR would raise the other $200. The city agreed but also purchased another 18 feet of land for curb and gutter, looking ahead to the modern Riverside Drive. The DAR would then give their $200 to the city, and the city would own the intaglio, forever protecting it. In June 1920, the DAR and the city, along with representatives from the Wisconsin State Historic Society, dedicated the intaglio as a preserved relic from our ancient past. Located safely on land owned by the city of Fort, the intaglio became a historic landmark, and not the bargaining chip of a greedy Mr. Telfer. One side note, somehow, in all this fundraising, land wrangling, and colluding, everyone forgot about the intaglio's tail. The tail, which stretched several feet to the east beyond the body, was not included in the land purchased by the city and DAR. Mr. Telfer promised not to do anything with the tail until more funds could be raised. And true to form, he ignored this, and a year or two later, sold the tail's portion to a developer who built a house on the site. So now, sadly, the intaglio's tail is under a driveway. But courtesy of images and increased Lapham survey, we know what the tail looked like in its approximate size. Thus ends our story. 
or at least this chapter of the Intaglio story. The Intaglio is safely owned and maintained by the city of Port Atkinson. It still continues to view the world from its grassy spot next to the river. The world just looks a little bit different now than it did when the Intaglio was first constructed. So the next time you're driving along Riverside Drive and you pass the little grassy spot with wooden fences, think of all the history the Intaglio has seen. Think of all the changes that have occurred around it. And definitely think of the people who built it. Think about why they built it and how their creation has long outlived its creators. Think of Increase Lapham, who saw what the Mr. Telfers of the world were doing, and so surveyed the mounds wisely before they were gone. Think of the DAR and their decades-long efforts to preserve our ancient history. And think of yourself. What's your role in creating history like the ancient mound builders? And like the DAR, what's your role in saving history? I hope you've enjoyed this exploration of the Intaglio Mound on Riverside Drive. The Intaglio is located in the 1200 block of Riverside Drive or Highway 106 for viewing. For more overall information regarding the area's effigy mounds in the Intaglio, I invite you to visit the Horde Historical Museum and view our Mysteries of the Mounds exhibit, which explores the history and creation of the Native American effigy mounds in southeastern Wisconsin. For more information regarding the museum, please visit our website www.hordemuseum.org. Thank you very much for listening. Digging Our Past is a podcast of the Horde Historical Museum in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin. Today's episode was hosted and written by museum director Marilee Lee and audio engineered by Leisha Bade. The opening theme song is Harlequin, written by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.filmmusic.io. Full musical attribution can be found on our website at www.hordemuseum.org. You can also find additional podcast episodes and information about our museum on our website. <laughs>